1: Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 17 through 25.
0: Well, I think this should be our last session in the book of Jude. Just to finish it up a bit. Short one-chapter book written by our Lord's brother, brother of James, we have two epistles in the New Testament written by those that apparently were the brothers of our Lord and Savior, in a human sense. And as we have reviewed these last seven times, Jude is intensely focusing on apostasy. And uh, it's a very appropriate introduction, the vestibule, if you will, of the book of Revelation. Last time we got through the, this business of Enoch, we looked at prophecy before the flood. And um, we carry it down uh, through verse 16, I believe. I'll overlap 16 to flow us into 17, 18, and 19. Uh, 17, 18, and 19 are the verses that wrap up the major body of the epistle, verses 5 through 19. But we'll pick up about verse 16, which I realize is a review, I believe. The speaking of these that Enoch prophesied against, uh, Jude continues, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. It doesn't sound great, but bear in mind what Jesus is talking about here are apostates. We're going to shortly ask the question, are apostates saved? We'll deal with that by the time we get down to verse 19. How do we recognize an apostate? Well, they're murmurers, complainers, and walking after their own lusts. Murmurers. That's kind of rough. Now we've seen earlier in Jude's epistle he focused on the murmurs, specifically the people of Israel, and their sin of murmuring. We covered that earlier. he covered complainers. And uh, you and I sort of, I think, would sort of wink at that saying, gee, we all have our bad days, and we sort of moan and groan and complain. But uh, Jude's point is, uh, the angels that were dissatisfied with their assignment are now kept in a special place. Their main sin was initially that of being dissatisfied with their assignment. And of course they took it in their own hands and got themselves in deep trouble. We read about those earlier. And also walking after our own lusts. The Old Testament example that Jude called upon earlier was of course Sodom and Gomorrah. But now Jude is applying this practically to a personal walk. He has shifted from these sweeping Old Testament uh, corporate examples. He's also drawn in verse 11 of three individual examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. He's going to shift and right where you and I live. First of all, hi, these are murmurers. This word is a noun, is not found anywhere else in the uh, the New Testament. And uh, we find murmuring by the Jews against Christ in John 6. The disciples murmured and then walked with Him no more, Those, those that did in John 6. And it's a, not a sin of any minor importance to murmur. It's a hallmark of apostasy. First step. And complainers. Here again as a noun that's not found elsewhere in the New Testament. And complainers, we find the Pharisees finding fault in Mark 7. We covered, I think, all this last time. Fault finding can be the mark of a Christian who's turned his back on the truth. So complainers may be apostates. These are signs. These are symptoms. These are indications. Now, complainers displeased the Lord in the days of Moses, we saw in Numbers 11, and also it displeased the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 7. Can any of you find a verse that says his attitude is shifted between then and today? I don't think so. So, that's uh, something we should pay attention in. This will lead us to a verse, you know, I think I've told you many, many times that we know that St. Paul not Jude now, I'm talking about St. Paul. We know that he was a southerner, right? Because he always says, grace and peace to you all, right? Did you, yes, you know, I hadn't heard that. Did you know that he's not a Texan? Did you know that Paul was a southerner but not a Texan? He didn't know that. Because he said he's learned in whatever state he finds himself, in to be content. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a a very, very childish little quip that we've used from time to time, but it does make reference to Philippians 4.11 where he does say that, and of course he's saying it in a very serious sense, that that he's learned as a Christian that whatever state he finds himself, whatever conditions he finds himself, therein to be content. And that's the contrast, that's the New Testament contrast, between the complainer and the proper walk. Murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, I think we, we understand uh, that term walking after their own lusts. The same words used there, by the way, that the Lord uses in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, but I think we know what that means. And Second Peter 3, which we looked at several times throughout the study, where this, uh, at the end time there'll be scoffers coming, walking after their own lusts. And we'll look at that again shortly for some reasons. Okay, murmurs, complainers, and those that fell a lusting. At Old Testament parallel, Jude ha- hammered it in verse 16. But then he adds, of course, another hallmark of apostasy, Their mouth speaketh great swelling words. And I think we talked about that. Uh, It's the same expression that uh, Peter uses in the second letter in chapter 2. We looked at that last time. And, um, of course, it's also an identifier, not just of apostasy generally, but of the great rebeller, the leader of the rebellion. Uh, uh, The Antichrist himself is identified in uh, Revelation 13 and... Daniel 8, Daniel 9, you name it, as Mr. Big Mouth. Having um, great swelling words. If we, we talked about that last time. This is just by way of sort of reveal. And then we have this last phrase that uh, I think we also highlighted uh, in a posse. Having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. That's kind of clumsy King James language for really saying where people position themselves through their publicity, through their flowery uh, resumes, whatever, to gain advantage. You know, there's a place for that in business, but in the church, we should be appalled when professionalism takes the place of the call of the Holy Spirit. When you start seeing that, that's the time to have the caution flag flying. Verse 17, then, Jude here is going to shift gears now and talk positively. I mean, up till now, we've been hitting apostasy, Uh, All these bad guys and all the grim things that are going to happen to them, both in the past and prophecies against them. Now, now, uh, Jude is going to shift gears here. He says, But beloved, so he's shifting now from apostates to the believer. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the watchword. Remember the word collectively, or plural here is words, which are spoken before by the apostles of our our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting that Jude opened his letter with quotes from the Old Testament references, and uh, he concludes, of course, with, in effect, the New Testament apostles. You say, gee, Chuck, we've been talking about apostasy here and apostasy there. What's your protection against it? What's your protection against apostasy if you're worried about it, if you feel it's a threat? We've been talking now for Seven weeks on apostasy. What's your protection against it? Right here, verse seventeen. Remember ye the words. Now that implies you know the words. That implies you've read the words. So, what you cling to is the word of God. Those who are taking notes can. And you know, I won't take the time to go through all of these because it be cumbersome, perhaps. But Proverbs thirty-five, thirty colon five. Uh, Psalm 119, 162, we should rejoice in the Word as those that find great spoil. In fact, you can take Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and every verse is about one subject, the Word of God. Remember the Word, that's your main armament. Verse 17, But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you, There should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These are they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. Jude is speaking in a tactical or local sense. When we read that, we can read it in a broader sense, that our refuge is the Word. And the whole issue of the Word of God, of course, is that it's not... Man's wisdom, but it's by the Holy Spirit. And you turn to First Corinthians two thirteen. First Corinthians two thirteen, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Also the classical passage for this same idea, same similar idea, is Second Peter one twenty-one. For prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Those of you that have spent some time with us know that that's been my primary passion or interest. We go through the scripture from Genesis through the major prophets, through the New Testament gospels and epistles here and there, and obviously the book of Revelation from end to end. And there's much that we've touched upon, much that we've talked about, but the primary mission that I personally would espouse or aspire to or what have you would be to instill in you an excitement, an interest, enthusiasm, a passion for God's Word. That's really the beginning and the ending of it all as far as these gatherings are concerned. As we go, we've learned a lot, but that's the real thing that I hope you've carried away. Now, these apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ warned of this very thing that Jude is concerned about, namely apostasy, and let's take a look at Acts 20. To one of the famous passages. Paul in Acts 20 is talking to one of his many churches that he both started and, and, and shepherded as he went around. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17 on, he is dealing with the Ephesian elders. But I'd like to pick it up about verse 028. Verse 28, he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. He's speaking to the leadership of the Ephesian church. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them." And on he goes, warning the Ephesian church that when he leaves, they're going to be the victims of attempts to uh, get them off track. It's very interesting to see these strange Christian cults, extremists of one shape or another, They don't convert off the street. They proselyze in our parking lot here. They don't go after unsaved. They focus on the body. And uh, many of them are built around some basic truth, slightly exaggerated. And uh, uh, all of them have in that characteristic a failing in embracing the whole counsel of God, a balance. But Paul here anyway in Acts is warning the Ephesian church that they would be victims, if you will, of uh, wolves and so forth. It's interesting to note that the Lord Jesus Christ authored seven epistles in the New Testament. They are gathered together in what we call Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And the first of these seven letters is to none other than the church at Ephesus. And it might be provocative to take a read. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ picked seven churches, very interesting seven churches, not the most important, not the biggest, but seven churches which served, they were literal churches at the time, but they also served to model all spiritual conditions of the church individually and collectively. It also happens to also chronicle uh, uh, the church history from that time on. But the first church... Clearly identified as what you might call the apostolic church, that first century era. Jesus Himself says, in Revelation chapter two verse one: "Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, write these things: saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands." These are identifying phrases extracted from chapter one, the book of Revelations, in code, if you will, in graphic uh, idioms, and these are reflexive to chapter one. Verse two, he says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them who are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Very interesting. The Ephesian church, both literally in terms of the church at Ephesus, but also generically for that era, was diligent in terms of doctrine. You would think, apparently, that they have responded to Paul's admonition in Acts 20. Because he warned them there would be these wolves coming to give them deviations. And apparently, so far, you would get the impression that the Ephesian church did well on that. Except as we read on, verse 4, the report card isn't finished. Lord says, Nevertheless, painful word, painful word, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love remember therefore where thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else i will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy lampstand out of its place except thou repent it's interesting that the ephesian church here characterized was doctrinally sound but was missing something that's very very important what were they missing love that first love that passion for the lord It could be said they were so busy about the king's business, they had no time for the king. And so um, that's what he warns them. And he says, in fact, if they don't return to that position, he will remove their lampstand, that is, remove their witness. How many of you ever attended a church in Ephesus? It's uh, gone, right? Well, won't badger that one, but anyway, okay. So the apostolic warnings, there's an example that um, we can springboard from Jude in terms of This was uh, spoken of before by the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, he told them that there would be mockers in the last days who would walk after their own ungodly lusts. Same phrase that Peter uses in his second letter, chapter 3. In fact, uh, we've looked at it before, but this is probably worth taking another quick look at. 2 Peter chapter 3, the second epistle Beloved, I now write unto you, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. See, in other words, this is a common theme, something not unique to Jude. Paul mentioned it in Acts 20. Peter here is talking about it. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? In other words, they deny the second coming of Jesus Christ, but go, another interesting link. Verse 4 is very provocative. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, they're also mocking at this concept of creationism. They're espousing uniformitarianism, or uh, you know, Darwin didn't invent that idea. It was mentioned here by Peter, verse 4. You say, well, gee, that seems like a non-sequitur. What does the Second Coming have to do with creation? You see, they're linked. They both are based on the premise that there's a God who intervenes in history. The fact that God created us, He overtly, specifically acted with a purpose and that purpose will be climax in the second coming of Jesus Christ. The concept of the creation and the concept of the second coming of Christ are here linked. A disbelief in one leads to a disbelief in the other. So uh, you may wonder, gee, all this business—I don't know if you got in, you know, if you happen to get into this evolution creation thing. You say, well, gee, that's history. It's Genesis. Who cares? Well, partly it's very, very basic uh, because it's—you uh, either accept what God says or you don't—and the same premise that underlies both presentations, that there is a God who does what He says He's going to do, who did for a purpose, cares about the result, and involves Himself in the history of men. So it's interesting that verse 4, is it's not obvious that those things fall until you think it through. The word for scoffers, by the way, is unique to both Peter and Jude. Scoffers and mockers are the same. It's nowhere else in the Bible, by the way. Getting back to Jude, Verse 19 says, These are they who separate themselves, if that's what your King James says. More precisely, they are they who make separations. Luther translated this, those who make factions. Those who bring about divisions because of borderlines or limits. Now, when you get that far, you also can easily assume that what they're talking about are ecclesiastical doctrines. That actually is not what it's talking about. The limits are talking about the limits of sin, the sense of the law. And that's what's actually underlining that phrase. It's not obvious from the from the way it's translated in the English. The neglect of God's Word will lead to heterodox teaching and that ultimately will lead to, hopefully, a reformation. That was the context of uh, Luther's life and, and, and sense. Now, there is a reverse of that idea, the positive side of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, you might want to mark. 1 Corinthians, you always used to wonder, why is it that in general you find a minister who's right on in everything but one thing? Everyone knows that? I don't know if you have run into ministers that are, see, they see read right on, but there's always something that you don't quite, you may stumble on. Well, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. 19 deals with that, because Paul tells us, there must be also heresies among you. Oh, really? Why must there be heresies among you? That they who are approved may be manifest among you. Is that interesting? This issue is uh, not a local one. It's not one that was just unique to Jude, or just unique to time. It's it's intrinsic in the whole business of, of uh, building the body. Now, before we leave uh, this, Jude has an example. If you're in your epistle of Jude, turn back one page. There's an example or an illustration of what Jude's talking about in third John. That's the book just preceding Jude. The illustration occurs in verses 9 and 10. John is writing here, and he says, I wrote unto the church, but, Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and he forbiddeth them that would and cast them out of the church. This guy's a bad apple. But he's active in the church. So he had a following. He had a presentability, apparently. Caused division of the church, refused to receive John, and he loved his own preeminence. That's why, you know, pride and this uh, preeminence is always a symptom of, you know, something that should give us caution. Christ is to have preeminence. In Philippians 2, verse 3, we're each is to esteem the other better than themselves, and so forth. So here we have an apostate, spoke evil of John, used malicious words, refused to receive the brethren, forbid others who would have done so, and even casting them out of the church. And uh, John goes on to uh, summarize this in verse 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, and he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now, in verse 19, we're down to verse 19 in Jude, it also says the word sensual. Now, all of us, I'm sure, if we took a written quiz, believe we know what the word sensual means. If I offer you a quiz to have you write that, you'd probably discover, if we were very strict, that your presumption about what he's talking about here happens to be incorrect. He's not talking sensual like lasciviousness. That's not the concept here. The word sensual here, in the Greek, is psychos. It means soulish. Soulish. That is in the realm of the senses, but not in the senses in the sense that it's lascivious or extreme. It's just what they are here is they are soulish, okay? Mark 12, I forgot to dig this out, I should have, I'm sorry. Mark 12, 30, and um, verse 29, and Jesus answered him, uh, the first of all the commandments is, is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. How often we skip that part, right? But that's the Shema, okay. If you go in any Jewish home, what's on the doorpost? Masusa, right? Yeah, and what's in it? a piece of scripture, but typically it's the Shema. That thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. He adds something. That's not the way it is in the Torah. He added a phrase. Where do you get that authority? It turns out that uh, my wife got issued this about five years ago. She wanted to know how to keep the first commandment, the greatest commandment. And she noticed there was a first of all, you know, what is the heart? What is the soul? What is the mind? We use those words all the time. And so she embarked on a word study that's taken about five years. Every word that's translated in any of those things, in Hebrew and in Greek, she tracked down every place that appears and tried to it turns out the mind. See you and I, when we think mind, we think brain, don't we? That's what the scripture uses. Scripture has a different idea when it says mind. It means something else. Now, what is the heart? The organ that pumps the blood? No, of course not. It's idiomatically used, but what is the heart? What is the mind? What is the soul? Your assignment. It turns out that you are the temple of God, right? You've all heard that expression from Paul? It turns out the structure that's implied by the Old and New Testament is the same structure that's in the temple. And there are some differences in the temple between the temple and the tabernacle. The body, soul, and spirit is a tabernacle model. There's something else added in the temple. And when you go into all that, it takes a long time so I won't take it tonight, but I'm just teasing you enough so you do some digging. You discover that there's something in the temple that's out of the tabernacle and it relates to the mind. And what is the mind?
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.